You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast with your hosts, Robert Gowan, Rudy Lindsay, Mike Pritz, and Kat Kalin. So some of the guys next week are um, picking up aircraft in Mesa and flying them to San Diego. You get to Ooh. stay in San Diego for nice. a couple days. So Yeah. How'd yeah, they make out on that one? It's just luck of the draw. Yeah. And they always have to, we always have to have a maintenance test pilot on the flights to make sure that nothing breaks. So right. the MTPs get... <laughs> get the good trips. How do they get those just, gigs? In the Army, or in Army aviation, you can track one of three different tracks. You're a mission pilot first and foremost, but then secondary to that, you're either an instructor pilot, which is what your buddy is, yeah. um, that's up at Rucker. And the instructor pilots are responsible for progressing all the new pilots that come out of flight school, because just like in a normal line unit, you're not ready to go fly helicopters when you get out of flight school. Yeah. Um, what? That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> We train all Green Berets to be ready to do everything, right out of the Q course, right? I I know, I know. So those guys are responsible for putting their lives in God's hands with with young, fresh nuggets straight out of flight school. Um, Of course I'm teasing, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Don't teach us guys to do anything. Learn all the unit, really. Yeah, exactly. make sure they don't quit. Yep. And then, uh, and they also do all the annual evaluations. So every year on my birth, in your birth month, you got to go make sure that you know how to land, take off, remember what spatial disorientation is and stuff like that. And then there's maintenance test pilot, which is what I do. So every time a blade's replaced and engine's replaced, any maintenance is done on the helicopter, I go fly it. Oh, jeez. Now, how is that any different than putting your life in the hands of somebody else? I mean... (laughs) Well, it's it's because the crew chiefs know that I will come back from the grave and murder them (laughs) in their sleep if they do anything. Um, And, you know... and. They they call me mom. They call me Mima. They I mean Mima. They, they would they would sooner cut off their own arm than do something to hurt me. So <laughs> they and I bring in baked goods. So ah, they, even better. Yeah, I saw the bread. Yeah. Good yeah, stuff. Yeah. Oh, I was super excited about the bread. Bread's tough. Yeah. Yeah. I I watched more YouTube videos about how to make bread yeah. than I have like how to fix my car sometimes. That's crazy. You know, the thing about bread is that when you take it out of the oven and it's nice and hot, and then you slice that puppy and you put some butter on it, there's no better thing. But after fresh bread is set for like 24, 48 hours, unless you've got a really good knack for it, it's like a brick, you know? Yeah. You you could, so. Yeah. Guys, I haven't had breakfast yet, so we can stop talking about the food. That would be great. (laughs) (laughs) I don't get breakfast for about an hour. We're meeting everybody for breakfast. Oh. I have M some questions that were sent to me she is a marine corps annapolis graduate that is right now i'm going through naval flight school and mm-hmm. she wants to track kilo one actually that might be good to ask you she was asking about the 160th and do you know of any women that's working the 160th yes i know of one woman in particular that went and assessed and didn't make it oh <laughs> And was invited to try again and decided not to at 41. <laughs> Green Platoon is no joke. And I'm at, I've got a couple of buddies of mine that are pilots now that are former SF guys that have gone through it. And they, they say the same thing. It's it's pretty intense. Yeah, I so I applied um, when I was in Afghanistan the last time in 2014 uh, when they opened it up to women. And I was 39 at the time that I dropped my packet. And, you know, I was stationed at JBLM at the time. And 4th Bat, uh, 160th is there. Uh, which has Chinooks and the 60s. And so, yeah, I dropped my application and was invited to come assess. I talked to them and asked if I could do it after my deployment so, you know, I could make sure I deployed with the unit, and they supported that. Uh, I went in December of 14 and went for the week-long assessment, went to Campbell and assessed there. It was was for sure the hardest week of my life. Um, It was... I'm not a super strong swimmer (laughs) and I had, I had worked at that, but I would say that I went in overconfident and underprepared. It was a really good experience. If you, if you go through something like that and don't learn a little bit about yourself as a person and as an aviator, uh, I I don't, I don't know where you're at, but I I learned a lot about myself. I made it to the board and, um, they let me know that, you know, they weren't, they weren't ready to take me at the time, but would like me to come back and try again in a year. And, uh, you know, it was so it was a it was a hard decision, and but there was there was a couple females there that were already in green platoon, a little Chinook driver, itty bitty thing, and uh, and a couple of chicks doing the doing green platoon for little birds, 
but but yeah, I mean they're out they're out there doing it, and it kind of frustrates me when I see all the, you know, the, the ranger stuff and you know everything else. And I'm I'm I can attest to the fact that some of these jobs that are being opened up to women aren't just these positions aren't being handed out, you know, right. on a silver platter. And because I, you know, I, I was surrounded by, you know, my my guys who were like, if if they take anybody, surely they'll take you, you know, crusty old tattooed garbage truck mechanic. <laughs> Doesn't take, doesn't, doesn't take any crap. I, you know, that's what I did in my slinging life. I fixed garbage trucks. I was a diesel mechanic for oh. ten years. So, but anyways, but yeah. That, so that's I, I know they're there, and I know they're doing it, and I know it's you know the the mission is the mission. The you know we work with ODA teams all the time when we're in country, and you know I'm in the stack regardless. You know the the abort criteria is still me. Yeah. You know it's, it's still the chick flying the AC one thirty. It's still so the, the mission is the mission. I just, in, in times of, you know, in, in the garrison environment, being a part of the 160th was attractive, you know, because there's a real mission. We're not, you're not out there shooting at plywood targets on the range, yeah. having a protrusion measuring contest for Top Gun. <laughs> so, Are you going to go back then? You're going to try it again? No, no, I'm not. Yeah. I, I It was a lot of talk to a couple of my mentors, talking to a couple of guys that are in, in the task force. And I've got five years to go. You know, I turn 41 in a month. I'm at a really good point in my career. I, I like what I do. I don't necessarily think that uh, at this point, if I went back, I don't know how much value added I would be to the team as a W3 yeah. with five years left to go. And that's that's what I'm primarily concerned with. It will I be value added? And if that's not the case, then I don't. All the all the glass ceilings are broken. I don't have anything to prove to anybody. Yeah, for sure. Just just, just here to do. I think project. it's. A- I think that's an interesting comparison. Obviously, you're talking about all the publicity we get for putting women through ranger school, and now they're starting, you know, special forces assessment and selection. And we've had women fighting from air platforms for years. And uh, I wish I knew her name. I don't. Maybe may, Ruby may may know her if uh, he's on. But in the early days of Afghanistan, I wasn't I wasn't on the ground. I was still working at Slick. But there was a a woman AC-130 pilot uh, who was was affectionately known as the Angel of Death. And uh, I know guys who who talk about her in in such a you know a, a way that her voice was so comforting, which you don't normally get from a pilot when you're talking on a radio. But her voice was so comforting when they were in some really sticky situations. That when they knew she was overhead, things were going to be okay. And and those are the stories that haven't been told. You're right. I, I think that that we get a lot of publicity because Ranger School's tough and because you know selection is tough and everything. But there've been women out there on the front line doing that kind of thing for a long time. Yeah, I agree. And this last trip to Afghanistan, I, there's a picture in my Instagram feed of the little lieutenant that I flew with, but our call sign was ovarian overload. Uh, we were an all-female crew. <laughs> and, the, uh, and, you know, she literally— Can I use that sometime? I'm going to write that yes, down. <laughs> yes, ovarian overload. That, that's what we were. we were. When I was in Iraq in 2011, I flew with a guy named Jeff Murphy, and he's a black guy, and so we were team affirmative action. Um, oh my gosh. So, oh my god! <laughs> but she was a great pilot. She was a, a young lieutenant. She could shoot, move, and communicate. I was just really impressed with her. She's my roommate in Afghanistan, as well as my platoon leader, which is always nice. Not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the only the only thing I ever had to say to her uh, in terms of you know constructive criticism or correction was that when your front seat lead. And we check in with the ground guys. You have got to put a little bass in your voice. You cannot sound unsure because they're depending on you. Right. Like when we show up on station and check in, you know, it's it's not always, you know, it's not always the ODA guys. It's not always the snake eaters and the door kickers. Sometimes it's a log pack mission. Sometimes it's a terrified little lieutenant and maybe an E5 and a PFC gunner. And they're scared shitless. Right. So if you don't check in, like you know what you're doing, and don't worry, we've got it. You know we're not going to let anything happen to you. We are going to get you safely from point A to point B. If they don't have confidence in your voice, which is all they can hear and and see you, then you you, you got to fix that. You know you got to correct it. Um, and she she took that to heart and went on to slay a bunch of bad guys and you know and you know actively contribute to a bunch of missions. And she was really. And she's in the infantry uh, captain's career course right now. Oh wow! She's like, wow, yeah. going to ranger school next probably. Oh oh lord, 
<laughs> you said you, you you keep using this word, talking about them very small like they're teeny tiny little things i mean imagine her with a big rucksack in range school humping through you know up mount yona or something down in georgia lieutenant burdick if you're watching this please don't do that <laughs> <laughs> please don't do yeah. that <laughs> so know. why why would an aviation officer go to the infantry captain's career course and she wasn't going to branch transfer the because of just backlog in the career course um, some of the guys, I have a couple captains who went to the, you know, who have engineer degrees. And so they went to the engineer career course at Leonard Wood. Obviously there's, there's far more infantry slots for the captain's career course than there are aviation. And because it's just so long, just for them to get in and stay on their career track, they'll go do that. I, I guess it's not infantry career course anymore. It's maneuver. So they, they, they put several branches together to create that anyway. Yes. And, and they're teaching them to be staff officers anyway. They're not really teaching them to be, yeah. you know, fighters. They get that in their own practical application from their, their platoon leader time. So, yeah. yeah. Do you have any direct air support there from Apaches or little birds or anything during any of your deployments, Kent? Yeah. When I was with the, the Rangers, I did. Yeah. Whenever we got in a tick or something, they would always call them in and sure enough, <laughs> here they come. And that was like the most comforting thing too, because you definitely need it when it starts getting a little crusty out there. So. Uh, there's not much more intimidating than having a pair of daps sitting right on top of you anyway. When, when you're on an objective. And I, I think that it, it's both comforting to us and intimidating as hell to the bad guys. When, I mean, you, you stack two of those, one at about 200 feet, one at about 600 feet, and um, and they can hit anything and just <laughs> you can do anything you want when you're on the ground. So, Em, you got to tell me, how was it that you came into, when you came in the Army, you were a wheel mechanic, right? Correct. So Garbage truck mechanic, I think. That said. garbage garbage truck, yeah, that's correct. So... How was it that all of a sudden you went from that into going into becoming a Apache pilot or just a pilot in general? I mean, why was it that you didn't stick in the career track, you know, enlisted and the whole bit, or what drew you to the uh, the flight school? When when I joined the Army in the end of 95, beginning in 1996, I wanted to fly helicopters because the, the story I always tell is that I wanted to be like TC from Magnum PI. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that was my one goal. The But when I went to the recruiter's office um, as a young chick in Salem, Oregon, I was told that that was just not possible because I only had a GED. Uh, I dropped out of high school when I was 15. Gotcha. And the, uh, my, my, you know, I had a, had a good GT score, but they said, it's not going to happen. You can be a cook or a truck driver or a wheel mechanic. And a wheel mechanic sounded like a trade um, that I could take and do when I got out. So I chose wheel mechanic, then got st- uh, stationed in Germany and promptly deployed to Bosnia after my after my training. So I was in Bosnia in 1996. In 1997, I took the flight test, but then you know got married, got out of the military, went to work as a garbage truck mechanic. <laughs> uh, did <laughs> did that for six years. Then when I came back in in 2004, came back in as an E4 as a wheel mechanic, and then deployed 0507 to Baghdad with the engineers. And that really lit the fire back in me to be an aviator. The, uh, we did a lot of convoys. The engineers were building the belt around Baghdad, building all the checkpoints. We built up a lot of IA cops, you know, tiny little cops. I was in Mamadia, Rustamaya, Gator Swamp, Lion's Den, you know, just all, all over Baghdad convoying uh, in my wrecker because I drove the wrecker for the engineers. And again, just like Kat said, you know, when you, you know, when there's an IED strike, when something happens, the, you know, having the Apaches come in was just so comforting Yeah. and, and being so afraid, you know, I was a staff sergeant at the time and had my, you know, had my right seater was an E4, uh, specialist Pagan was a construction mechanic and we rolled all over Baghdad with the engineers fixing broke stuff, hooking up to blowing up stuff. And that was what we did. And I just really was struck by the feeling of helplessness out there. You know, these cowards weren't going to come take the fight to your face. You just never knew when it was your time in all those days and days and days of convoys or being out there um, sleeping in the back of my truck, you know, in these tiny little cops and the stuff we were doing. So I realized that I was turning 32 soon and then the cutoff for applying for warrant officer was 32. So I dropped, I... (laughs) I decided I was going to fill out my packet. I started working on my packet. I didn't know a single pilot, didn't know an aviator. So I took my half Sunday off and went to the helipad there at Camp Liberty, where First Cav was, and walked up to a helicopter and was like, hey, I need a letter of recommendation. 
I <laughs> didn't even know the guy or anything, or they didn't no. know you. Oh, wow. No. And they said, you know, hey, we can't help you. They're just a couple W-2s. We can't help you, but if you go over to that headquarters right over there. So as a staff sergeant, I walked into the 4th ID headquarters. The little gal who's checking IDs was like, how can I help you? And I said, you know, I need to talk to a pilot because I need a letter of recommendation. She's like, oh, let me go get someone. So she goes and gets the Lieutenant Colonel G4 Air. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> and he just kind of laughed about it, asked me to come back with my platoon sergeant, interviewed me, and wrote me a letter of recommendation. Wow, that's and outstanding. So I, you know, I, I was going to get it done no matter what. And I came back, was, was approved, and I knew I wanted to fly Apaches. As a female in the military, the only way for me to take the fight directly to the bad guy was to fly the Apache. Oh, yeah. I wanted to, you know, return the favor for all the times that I had been, you know, relieved, you know, and, and gotten safely from point A to point B. You know, and like you say, it's not even necessarily that they're, you know, killing the guys, but just their presence, you know, just that visual and audio deterrent to, you know, to keep it, get us safely from one place to another and so that we could complete the mission. Now, so uh, you already knew your objective was to fly Apaches or that was absolutely. kind of your end goal? Okay. Absolutely. And, and it's all based on needs of the Army. Yeah. You, you can get through flight school and you get, get to air, airframe selection um, and they go, hey, the Army needs 16 Blackhawk pilots and there are 16 of you. Guess what you're flying? Yeah. But it's all based on the OML, based on the order of merit list. I worked really, really hard, got first pick from my class and there was three Apaches and I got an Apache. Oh, wow. That's awesome that you were able to select it. Like you said, it's kind of a luck of the draw. I mean, it was it sounds like kind of a destiny. You were you were meant to do this. Yeah, I told her that. I was like, you know, that's probably one of the coolest stories. You used to get blown up, and then you got to go become a Valkyrie and protect all those ground troops, just smoking motherfuckers <laughs> with your thirty millimeter. You know, <laughs> and I don't know. As a ranger, I think that's like one of the only other jobs. Like, there's very few jobs that were like, damn, if I couldn't be a ranger. I would definitely want to be doing what you were doing, you know? Like, that's definitely just as cool. Well, Mike was talking, too, about how there was an AC-130 gunship pilot. Um, In Afghanistan, yeah. yeah, the Angel of Death. That's what they called her, the Angel of Death. Yep. And, no, uh, I met her. Did you really? I did, too. I, I, yeah, don't, yes. I don't remember her name. Maybe you do. I, I, uh, I went to a course with her several years after that. I think one of my pre-command courses that she was uh, – a lieutenant colonel at the time, man. Oh, wow, yeah. She was, uh, I think, just a major. No, she might have yeah. been a lieutenant colonel when I met her, but uh, we called her the Black Widow. She yeah. killed like 300 people in that moment. And, uh, I mean, she was like pretty and blonde and stuff like yep, that. that's her. And, that's uh, the one. <laughs> yep. 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 And we probably exactly. call her tiny, pretty, and blonde. But, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's yeah. how I told Emily. It's so funny. It's like this cute little girl. In an Apache, just smoking bad guys, you know, like nothing's cooler than that, you know. <laughs> the, it's, it was always the best, especially, not so much because, you know, in Afghanistan, we were talking mostly to JTACs. But in Iraq in 2011, during Operation New Dumb Shit, the, uh, <laughs> you know, it was the majority of the people we were talking to. Were I'm just, hashtagging that too, Amsterdam. New Dumb Shit. <laughs> we're, so. we're just you know, just, just log pack kids, you know, you know, straight, either straight infantry kids or, you know, a little log pack lieutenant and you're getting them up and down Tampa. And you, I would check in on whatever frequency they gave us and check in. And a lot of times they would not know that we were up there platoon internal and be like, Holy shit, that Apache pilot, a girl. Oh my God. <laughs> and then inevitably, inevitably, I wonder if she's hot. And yeah, that's the first thing that comes to mind, really. No, she's a little bitty thing, actually. Priorities, right? Yeah, I would always come back with, hey, Blue 26, this is Brimstone 17. I am, in fact, smoking hot, however, comma, pause. I am internal and would like your task and purpose. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> that would just be absolutely. Oh, that's Cool. Absolute silence. Absolute silence. And you know, in the truck, they're like, "I'm not been talking to her." You yeah. Talk to her. No, I just jumped right on the mic after that. <laughs> yeah. We were working up at Shocker one time, and um, we were just working with a couple of uh, trucks out doing um, patrols around Shocker. And I, I don't know if you guys remember, but in 2011, Shocker got blown up with a V-bid, real, real bad, up there on the border. And it was right before that. But the the kids in the truck asked my backseater. I was I was shooting. I was from the front seat, and they asked my backseater. They were like, "What's what she look like?" And um, the guys were like, and my backseater Isaac Barnhart was like, 
dude, she looks just like a brunette Pam Anderson. And I was like, dude, why would you lie to them like that? <laughs> because if we get shot down, they are going to be to that crashing. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're like shooting each other to get there first. Get, <laughs> like, Back off. I can't argue with that. Do we notice? Oh, yeah. It's a unique form of self preservation. I like it. It's <laughs> really cool. Yeah. Not. If guys think there's a pretty girl over there, they're going to get to her one way or another. <laughs> and then when I look like a troglodyte, just the disappointment. That's all. <laughs> I'll be okay. What are some of the more rewarding memories of your job, do you think, Kim? One, one of my most memorable ex- experiences, and in fact, on Instagram, a kid reached out to me via DM that was actually on, on this mission and remembered it. We were Iraq 2011. One of the last places left that was still pretty dangerous was Numenia, just outside Delta. And for, for convoys, there was just a wicked two 90-degree turns and some palm trees there where bad guys always hit out. It was just a, just a real bad choke point for these convoys going through. And one of the trucks got blown up, an MRAP got blown up, and it was blown up pretty bad. And they had to call for contract wrecker support from Delta, which just infuriated me. They, you know, I, I, when I drove my wrecker, I was embedded with the, with the convoys at all times. Um, and if something got blown up, we hooked up and, and rolled out. And so it was very frustrating that these kids were left out there vulnerable and because, because we were so dependent on contractors. So we waited for the contractors to show up, um, provided air, close air support. I was getting ready to run out of gas. Um, I did not want to leave those kids there in that, in that spot. And finally the wreckers showed up and they hooked up and we're just, the, the convoy is just barely rolling, just barely rolling. And so I called down to the convoy commander and I was like, what is the holdup? We need to go. I mean, we need to go. And they couldn't figure it out, couldn't figure it out. And so I asked him, I was like, listen, go down and ask that wrecker driver if he removed the intermediate drive shaft from that MRAP. If that's what's holding him up. <laughs> yeah, there's a, yep. And uh, if he's dragging that transfer case and so about 10 minutes goes by and sure as shit, sure as shit, he, you know, just some third world contractor had no idea that he needed to do that. So they pulled that drive shaft and then suddenly we're doing, you know, a good 30, 35 miles an hour. And, and we got back to Delta before I ran out of gas. Which is a huge design flaw. I, I, I hate think, that design flaw. Like, you know, if you're getting IED, you shouldn't have to get out and take a drive shaft out to be able to tow the thing. I hated that. But no, no, you at the same time. Like, yeah, that's the smartest shit. See, if you weren't a truck driver, you wouldn't have known that. No, and I, I think my comment to the lieutenant was like, don't make me land this thing and get out and do it myself. Now, that would have been funny. <laughs> that would have been funny as hell. You'd have got out of your helicopter, walked over and go, what's the problem here? So, yeah, that that was, you know, besides besides the engagements and the mission support, that was just one that has always really stuck out to me. And there's been a couple times where I've done some some roadside troubleshooting when we come across guys on BFT that are broken down and, you know, they got all, you know, they're having battery issues, but they've got all their white lights on and like turn white lights off Yeah. all the power. <laughs> so you have the cult, the amps to turn your starter over. Just come on guys. Let's, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, you know what a mechanic saved my ass one night is I didn't realize with the JP eight fuel, how if you cut your truck off after it's hot, your injectors are all swollen, so it won't start up again until it cools down. And luckily, we randomly had the mechanic on, and we were running away from, like, at least 75 to 100 guys coming to get their commander guy that we just snatched up out of bed. And uh, he comes up with an Aquafina bottle and pours it on the injector pumps for me to, you know, shrink down the needles in there. And boom, fired right up. And I was like, shit, thank God for mechanics, man. You know, <laughs> no, it's handy having you guys around. Especially when we're airborne and can you know yeah. <laughs> with a 30 millimeter attached to you yeah it's like and smoking hot stuff. don't forget that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> always hot yep. yeah now there was something to being a ground guy and having like a pretty girl up there like kind of watching your back um i don't know it made you feel good kind of like a mom thing but i don't know different <laughs> yeah. yeah it's it's a weird kind of comfort you know when an a10 or uh, apache's coming in and then you hear the voice over the radio, you know, and it's even more comforting when it's a female. For some reason, it's like, all right, this, yeah. this is going to be okay. Yeah, it's like yeah. she for us. Yeah, all you guys have a very bad day. Yeah, so. and you know, I, I always, it was nice for, 
for us to, especially in Afghanistan, where a couple times you check in on station and, you know, I do a BHO, do a handover with the Kiowas who be a couple of chicks. Uh, I do a handoff with them. And then I start talking, you know, checking in with the staff, those, you know, the female warthog drivers and the AC-130 drivers. And, you know, inevitably the, the women that I've met in Army aviation have just been just a solid group of chicks you know, just, just, you know, with that, and I don't, it, it could very well be, I mean, let's, let's not bullshit ourselves. I mean, there's genetic differences. I don't know if it is that mom instinct that, you know, that makes us really want to protect, protect the door kickers and not, not even the, not just the door kickers, but you know, every, all the support MLSs, all the guys, anybody outside the wire, just solid professional women. And it's, you know, in our, in our talk and in our, all of our headquarters, there's always posters of the ground dudes and just constant perpetual reminders to remember why we do what we do. Yeah, and cool. To not, and to not take it for granted. And when you're tired and you've flown 90 hours and you know, you're jumping to your fifth aircraft because they've broken and you have an hour left in your mission window, you get in the helicopter and you go do what you gotta do. And so it's, it's a really, really rewarding experience. It has been for me so far in the seven, eight years I've been doing this. You know what's <laughs> crazy? I'm gonna, I'm gonna pipe in finally. Because I just had an aha moment. And I don't know, like, this is kind of crazy. I just had, like, this epiphany. So these guys, these soft guys especially, just from what everybody has said, it's like, yeah, it's like we feel a sense of comfort when they're, we know that they're, like, in that, I hate to say, like, mom rule, but you hear a woman over the radio and it's like, yeah, okay, we're going to be all right. But now back to the guys on the ground, having a woman next to you, they, yeah, I was going to say that. That comfort's gone. Where's the comfort at? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, like, it's uh, more worry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's like, like you got to keep her safe. The, right. Like, I mean, like, and that's one of the biggest issues. It's like, okay, it, depending on, would you go for the guy that got hit or the girl that got hit, depending. But even having, like, women out there, not so much of, like, the role that I was because as being a CSC or an enabler, but, you know, one of the guys in the line or in the stack, like how, like talking to you guys, like you're, that that's not this, it's not the same. You know, like, look at you guys looking at each other right now. You're like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> see, yeah. I can see you. I can see you right now. So. Yeah. <laughs> it's oh. a different, there's such a different feeling about, there's such a, like comfort is like zapped. You're like, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. I want a big Jack guy like Cessna going in the room first and. I mean, that's what got me through deployments was having these other big badasses around that knew what they were doing. And, uh, like, you know, a woman can, like, you can train a woman up to shoot real well, but, you know, there is physical fighting over there. Like, I was on squirter chase all the time. I had to wrestle guys to the ground. Um, you know, I had guys trying to stab me with knives and stuff. And I don't know. Like, you know, maybe that chick will be all right, like Ronda Rousey or something. But over there, you know, you don't. You don't play around. It's not a game, you know. You like, like we try to go three to one odds when we go fight, and why are we all of a sudden gonna like change that up just to kind of I don't know make someone happy or for an idea or something? I don't know. I think uh, I think that that ship sailed though. That it's gonna happen. Yeah. We just had a female, uh, the first female RASP candidate, try to make up make it to the seventy fifth, and she didn't meet the standard. But there's gonna be more, and they're gonna make it, and that's how it's gonna be, you know. But I think that. <laughs> You know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, women in combat and should we let them do it? And, uh, you know, y'all have been doing it for a while. You know, I mean, it's mm-hmm. a it's a disservice to the women that are already doing it. I think we could look closer. Yeah. More training opportunities, yeah. more leadership opportunities. Women going to school, that's a great thing. You know, more people, more leaders need to go to the combat leadership school. So, I don't know. I think that women have been slugging it out for the last 15 years right next to men. And I think that uh, we've Just found a lot of really ideal roles. For both genders, and uh, you know, maybe, maybe we shouldn't meddle with that so much. But yeah, like we kind of figured out how to have women in combat without messing it up. Like, you know, like look at you two. You guys are there helping us. You're still getting shot at, blowing up, shit like that. You know, you're a warrior. You should have all the respect and all. But when it comes to like the other job, like us being infantry, you know, there's a reason there's not combined female and male boxing in the Olympics. You know, and it comes down to that once you get up in the house a lot. And that's the only gripe I have is that, you know, because a woman can run a gun system the same as a man, you know, because there's shitty weak guys that get in there and freeze up, you know. Um, 
I'm just more worried about the physical stuff. Like, you know, when I walked on missions, I had to pray every step not to fall out because I carried 120 pounds on my back on moon rocks and stuff, you know? Yeah, that's the only reservation I have is about maybe uh, the hand-to-hand stuff. But we'll figure that out. And that was, you guys, we, we talked about a little bit earlier, but I, I went and assessed for 160th when I got back from Afghanistan. And that was that was one of my frustrations that, you know, it's already, it's already, and I didn't make it, you know, so all these talks about, you know, the standard being lessened and all that stuff isn't the same across all the soft communities. Uh, and there was girls who made it. Um, I, you know, I know some females that are there in Green Platoon that are flying little birds and are, who are doing it. And it's really no different than my mission. Uh-huh. That, was com- that was the comment I made is that I'm, we're in the stack anyway. So I think aviation and, and 160th is a little bit different than, than the door kickers. And I personally don't know. In, in all of my 15 years in the military, I have never once met a girl that wants to do that. So my, yeah. question, my question always is, where are they? Where are these yep. women that are so desperate to get out there and be kicking in doors and carrying 120 pounds and doing stuff that I don't want to be doing? Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I want to contribute to the mission where I'm the most value added, where I can lay lead to bad guys and protect the ground, dude. So yeah. wherever that is, that isn't about bringing glory to Emily, that isn't about bringing, you know, achieving some social cause, you know, breaking some glass ceiling, but wherever that is, is where I want to be. And if, like they made the decision, they made the determination that for whatever reason, based on my confidence or my abilities, I would not be value added to the mission for 160th. High five. I'm gonna go that guy's ass. And, <laughs> and that's, and that's what's that? like, I think that's what's important is like, that's what people need to understand that instead of making it a political statement or like a social experiment is you need to be able to add value to the mission. Yeah. And it can't, you can't come in here with like this whole I'm a woman, hear me roar. I'm, you know, big feminist movement. And I think that's like, they're trying to push that. And, you know, and I talked to guys down here, like uh, you were saying, Paul, about that woman that went through RASP and she didn't make it. Okay, we got it. That was one woman. And now all of a sudden some Sergeant Major's like, hey, we're recruiting all these women, like come to RASP. You know, they're like pushing it so hard. But like you said, Em, no, what woman wants to do it? They're not out there. And they're spending billions of dollars wanting to revamp the army for what two women three women it's not it doesn't i mean yeah good on you if you want to go and try and you know just go do tough mother like don't go Go do tough mother i mean i i'm all for like if you want to go try and the standards are the same or whatever but you really you got to look at like american culture our military culture like you, like you guys said, it's like, would you go after the, the man first or the woman on the ground? You know, what is this, is this mission effective? And that's the biggest reason why, yeah, okay, CSTs, we were out there. But once, like, once Ashley got killed, it was like, okay, you guys, that, like, that's screwed with that platoon. Like, mentally, that's, yep. like, their their baby sister got killed. You know what I mean? You They talked yep. to him, it's like, she was a ranger just like us, regardless of ranger school or being in the 75th. But, like, that messed with that platoon. And the thing is, is that right after that, all of a sudden there's an Alarac that comes out that CSTs will be such and such distance away from the compound and we'll stay there until it's completely clear and secure. So, you know, I mean, what, what can you say? You know, they don't, you think about that, they don't even, whoever's making the rules on like allowing women to go into infantry and into ranger school, special forces, it's like, do you not remember what happened back in? 2012 or 2011 and then the following year again with uh jennifer i mean even with the rangers you know it's like look at history and what's happened i don't know i just you remember the jessica lynch story i mean that was so awful i mean those guys that went in there and saved her what was that uh it was 375 charlie company and i think there was elements of 175 there too you know that was so messed up that pretty little girl was in there i mean she was immobilized from being raped by these guys in the hospital and everyone knew what was going on and then they had to go dig up the bodies of the other soldiers and you know that that messed with guys minds i mean you saw like dead guys in short graves in the ground and guys are like you know that's disgusting i'm gonna remember that forever but i don't know for some reason it's ingrained in you and especially as a warrior i mean you've got that protective mindset that kind of man mindset that's like Stuff like that shouldn't be happening to women, you know? And I think mixing that up is going to cause a lot more uh, mental health issues. 
because, I mean, even in the regular army now, the non-combat stuff, there's, like, issues with, you know, fraternization stuff. I mean, you add in the, the blood and guts with it, <sighs> I don't know. just seems like a real bad place to be in. Yeah, I've, I've seen female integration on the ground level, and it's been extremely helpful to accomplish our missions, and I've seen it uh, create problems. And uh, I don't know. I think that, that there are already women putting their asses on the line, like you two do, and you don't get the support and the training that you need. So maybe we, that should be focused before we decide, like, maybe we got a female Rambo that can go be a ranger. Maybe we can put a green beret on a girl. Like, that's fine, you know, if it gets, if you can pass the test and you can carry the weight, go for it. But what about the, what about the female lieutenant who's in charge of a convoy and has no formal combat leadership experience, no small unit tactics training aside from unit level that is the female we need to be worried about and the one we need to be supporting that's inequality right there when i'm a man and i get to go to whatever school i want to especially a school like ranger school mm -hmm. and learn how to be a combat leader and learn how to do small unit tactics but a female doesn't just by virtue of the fact that she's a female but she's still expected to wear the rank mm -hmm. and go out there and be an nco or be a be a pl and you know there there are no there is no wire there is no front line. It's all the front line. If yeah. you're out there, you're in. And I think that we're doing yeah. we're doing a disservice. We're, we're misallocating those resources. I, I would agree yeah. with that completely. And I saw that firsthand in my 0507 deployment with the, you know, the engineers, those engineer platoon leaders, the construction engineers were out there on the ground outside of curfew, actively negotiating and handing over these checkpoints that we built to IA officers, IA and IP. And again, the itty bitty, we have this itty bitty butter bar who maybe she has a sapper tap. Okay. But you know, she's what's out a, there. What's a sapper tap? Uh, it's a combat engineer ranger school. Mm. Carry, <laughs> let's go carry logs. Yay. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, uh, but, and here she is in charge of this complex operation with multiple checkpoints with multiple um, maneuver assets. You've got the horizontal guys with all the T walls that are built, actually building the checkpoints. You've got the vertical guys that are building um, the hut that's going to be stolen two days later. And we're working out there under white lights, multiple nights in a row in the same location. And then on the final day, we've got to get it signed off. And, and she's out, she's got her ass hanging out there. And you're right. She doesn't have any additional training on how to deal with that, how to deal with these foreign military ambush. Linear ambush. She doesn't know what to do. No. And we, and it happened all the time. And maybe we were lucky to have two or three infantry trucks providing us perimeter um, when we were out there under white lights in the same location at the same checkpoint for three and four nights in a row. Oh, and, <clears throat> and I parked there with my truck and just waited for us to get blown up. That, that was my entire mission. I parked on the side of the road and then we go back to whatever whatever fall we were closest in the daytime and, and when curfew was lifted and sleep and go back out and do it again the next night. Yeah. Um, but I mean, one of the reasons why you became an Apache pilot really was so that you could get closer to the fight, but do it in a different capacity. Isn't that kind of what you were stating earlier? And Yeah, absolutely. I, it was so frustrating to feel so helpless because you never knew where they were coming from. Um, you never knew where they, where they were coming from. They weren't showing their faces. You were just driving by whatever the last guardrail was left on Tampa, and you were going to get your ass hammered. And we, in a convoy, an engineer convoy, as I'm sure most of you have seen, is a huge thing. You're talking, you know, 20 to 30 916s with heavy equipment on the back of them, and then all the LMTV flatbeds carrying the Texas T's. It's, it's huge. It's a huge target. And I'm one Hemet wrecker at the aft of this entire formation. And, you know, you can't, you can't save everybody. And there was plenty of times where I was on the side of the road doing recovery operations, you know, with my, <laughs> my musket, my M16, you know, trying my best to provide my own security and engage my PTO and do the winch operations and pull this truck out of the canal, you know, and protect, you know, my nuggets on the ground, you know, all my little drivers and engineers who are terrified because they don't have any more training, you know? Yeah. And so, I mean, it was, it was, I wanted to shoot dudes in the face. Yeah. I was. Yeah. <laughs> Rudy yeah, would love that. Back. 
Rudy would love that. That's his line, by the way, every time he's ever been on a podcast, is somehow, some way, he has to plug in shooting a guy in the face. I don't know what it is, but... Because <laughs> it's so satisfying. <laughs> I guess being a sniper, the whole bit, I don't know, but it, that's what he always refers to is, you know, yeah, you gotta go kill some bad guys, shoot a guy in the face. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I mean, that's for you, Rudy, if you're listening. We're all mildly sociopathic. Yeah. <laughs> So you know, that like that like baking bread and you know yeah, I like killing bad people. <laughs> that was the difference of why you decided not to go, I guess, Blackhawk and you went Apache as well. Is that you wanted to get a little bit closer to the action or? Yeah, that ab- absolutely. I I, the, I am not I'm not one of those pilots who's like Blackhawks are dumb. Every every airframe in the military has a specific mission and they're really good at it. They're really good at it. I am really great friends with my Blackhawk brethren and I'm really kind of envious of the relationship they have with their crew chiefs because their crew chiefs ride. It's it's a much more family environment um, with the Chinooks and with with the Blackhawks. Of course, I'm sad about losing the Kiowas. But yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I wanted to be the first line of defense to show up on station for that kid that was me, who's, you know, been in there's there's been an IED strike. There's been something or just broke down. And I, I go do air ground integration briefs all the time. And that's exactly what I brief. It's always the key leaders that show up to the air ground integration briefs. I'm not talking to you guys. You're dismounted. You're out. I'm talking to the PFC gunner that's remaining in the truck. That's who I'm talking to. And if they don't know how to talk to me, right. then we're lost. So that's a good you- job where we didn't really need a like a lot of our guys kind of could take care of it. But that right there would take care of a lot of issues, man. You wouldn't have to go up through the platoon sergeant for fires. You know, we could yeah. just tell you what's happening. Yeah. And that's who I want to talk to. You know, I want to talk to, you know, one six golf. That's, that's the kid that, that I want to be talking to. And, and that was why I did that. Black Hawk mission is vital. You know, the Black Hawk mission is extremely important. The Chinook mission is, oh my God, beyond important in Afghanistan. Anyone who's been there knows that they go places that nobody can, but I wanted, (laughs) I wanted to kill dudes. There were so many times where, you know, there was a, there'd be an IED strike at the front of the convoy and we're on some narrow overpass and I can't get to it. You know, there's no room for me. There's no room for me to get around it. We're sitting out there with our asses hanging out. We can't move. You're looking, you're level with rooftops everywhere. It's just people everywhere on their phones and you don't know where it's going to come from. And I, I just was, I hated feeling helpless. I hated feeling helpless. And I knew that as an Apache pilot, when I show up on station, I'm relieving that feeling in every single person on the ground. And I'd always, and there's a lot, you know, we get a lot of young guys in the Apache community that are straight to seat types. You know, they're 21. I've got a kid right now who's 21 years old. He calls me Dima and he's an Apache pilot. And a lot of times the guys don't want to go out on those missions where there's not a lot of shit to shoot at because it's boring. I get yeah. it. You know, I'll go out and, and burn circles over a convoy for five yeah. hours. I don't care. Even if there's nothing to shoot at, because I know I'm making that kid on the ground feel safe. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be glamorous. It, I just have to be there. It's a good deal. Yeah. Yeah. Show a force, man. It matters. What kind of tips do you offer? We get a lot of people that, of course, you talk about direct message you. We get a lot of people that direct message us and stuff as well all the time. So what do you think are some of the things that you found through going through your experiences that you could take away and pass on as a mentor to other individuals lessons learned. What are some of the big life lessons learned that you've had? Because you've, you've gone the whole gamut of being not only an enlisted soldier, but now being a warrant officer and aviation, a totally different track. What are some of the life lessons you think you, you typically pass on? You know, the, you know, it's just kind of like what I passed on to my, to my crew chiefs the other day. The, the biggest lesson for me in life is that at the end of the day, regardless of what I do, I need to be able to come home, look myself in the mirror, and say that I did the absolute best I could do that day. To be the best person I could be, to work as hard as I could work. And some days I'm more successful than others. You know, Some days I suck at it. Some days I'm petty and am not proud of the work I did that day. Especially, you know, my story is that I dropped out of high school when I was 15. I actually had a baby when I was 16 that I put up for adoption. Um, that's why I dropped out of high school and went and got my GED and it just really struggled and worked my ass off. We are very fortunate to live in a country where I can go from that, from, you know, living in Salem, Oregon with a GED with not a lot of hope and not a lot of future to now being 40, you know, CW3 with, you know, a successful 15 year career in the military, five deployments and fly Apaches. It's, 
it's entirely, as long as you just are willing to set aside the whole victim bullshit and take responsibility for your life, take responsibility for your actions, put the effort in. The army only requires zero to 60%, right? You, you, only, have, you only have to get 60 points. That's, that's all the army requires. With a little fucking intestinal fortitude, if you're willing to go the 61 to 100%, then the sky's the limit. You are yeah, literally true. only limited by the effort you're willing to put into it. And I get a lot of DMs from kids who are like, how do you be a pilot? And mm -hmm. what do I do? And can you, you know, it seems hard. Yeah, well, yeah it's hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We get the same shit about being a ranger and stuff. And we're like, don't be a don't quit and trust me other people around you are doing it that means you can do it too yeah. and it means just try hard for the first time in your life give all your effort if you can <laughs> still breathe if you can still move that means you can keep going yeah you know but like 90 percent at least won't be able to do that you know they won't I, even sign up and go yeah and that's and that's like you know the resources if you literally google Army Warrant Officer Pilot, the very first thing that pops up is the HRC website that gives you a sample packet, a checklist, a video on commonly made mistakes, all the resource. And that was what I did in 2006 from Iraq. And so <laughs> Google is my, definitely your friend. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. And so my first question is always like, okay, where are you at in your packet? Well, you know, I, I got a, I got a study, a flight test study guide. Get the fuck out of my face. I just, I, you know, <laughs> and so, you know, in a nutshell, yeah, that, that's my biggest advice is that stop, stop blaming the world for your problems. Take responsibility for yourself. Take responsibility for your actions. Be responsible to yourself on a daily basis at the end of the day to say that you did what you could to not hurt others. You did what you could to be a better person. You did what you could to leave the world a bit, little better place than you left it. And maybe you got to kill some bad guys. Uh, yep. That's a good thing. I think that makes an impact. Yeah, yeah, putting a bullet in the face of an asshole, that stops a lot of bad shit from happening overseas, you know? <laughs> Especially with 30 millimeter. It leaves a really big... Yeah, God damn, that's so <laughs> cool. Got one up. Yeah, one up. Here's the one up guy. <laughs> Whatever, 60 millimeter. Beat that. <laughs> so are you already thinking about your transition out, Emily, or is it still a little bit too soon? Oh, no. <laughs> I, I've been thinking for, about that for like the last five years. No, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, yeah, as of October 1st will be my, my official 15 years, and so I have five to go. So, yeah, it's definitely the time you start thinking about transitioning, you know, being at zero balance with debt and stuff when that, when that day comes and being able to live off my retirement. And so, yeah, I, some days it's clinging by my fingernails to the window ledge. To, to get through it because garrison garrison environment makes me makes me super super crazy um <laughs> on those days hey. i just rub, i rub my earlobes and go pension pension yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you thinking say, of doing like, it seems like most of the people that like did the real combat were over there to like kill some bad guys <laughs> like all of us back home hated the bullshit you know because basically back home you're living in a totalitarian state semi-prison and it sucks and there's all these stupid rules and you're like, man, none of this applies to me being able to reload my gun faster and, and acquire a target, you know, like I don't want to do command staff ceremony standing there, <laughs> you know, I don't want to do battalion on your 5k runs, shit like that, like just let me work out and shoot guns and none of the other stuff, but I don't know, my brother's an officer and he kind of explained it to me and I guess that's for the big army itself, I guess you gotta have that. If they could just get all of us together that didn't need that garrison stuff, you know, <laughs> and just form its own little army, I think we could go roll through all of ISIS in about six weeks. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, the benefit for me is that as a maintenance test pilot, I there's a huge amount of that bullshit I don't have to deal with because I'm out on the flight line with my crew chiefs. You know, if every, I, that's why I didn't want to be an instructor pilot. I don't want to be safety. I don't want to be any of those tracks because in garrison, those guys are upstairs right outside the commander's office. I'm downstairs. I'm downstairs on the hangar floor with my crew chiefs. That's where my desk is, you know, not upstairs. I, I will never, oh God, pilot's briefs. Walking into a pilot's brief on a Friday is like walking into the waiting room of a gynecologist's office. Just a <laughs> of sore vaginas, Apache pilot. <laughs> the biggest yeah, I know exactly what that's like. Um, 
And so I, you know, I'm, I'm out, I'm out troubleshooting and that's my job. I'm, I provide advanced level troubleshooting. I'm, you know, representative of the commander's maintenance program. I'm out there helping the crew chiefs figure out what's wrong with the helicopter, fixing it. And then I go fly it. And so that, that relieves me from a lot of the garrison headache. So what are you going to um, do when you get out? What's your plan? Fix garbage trucks. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> hey, I've got one. I know you do. <laughs> no, absolutely. I, I, I love my very first love is turning wrench. I have a tattoo that says Mrs. Goodwrench, wrench or die. I, there's, there's something, it's, it's, it's a lot like baking or cooking or anything. There's something very tangible to taking something that's broken, figuring it out, fixing it and having a finished product at the end. It's not being on a staff where you're working on a team and you're depending on someone else meeting their suspense to turn their shit in for your project to be successful. And you know, I, I, I can't stand any of that stuff. So I will either go back to Oregon and work at the Tillamook cheese factory and live on the beach or go back to fixing garbage <laughs> trucks, but or go be the permanent maintainer up on the ranch. Yeah, see, the... Paul and James could use yeah. you up there fixing tractors and yeah, the whole deal. Oh my God, yes! <laughs> I have a PTO shaft that needs to be taken on my tractor right now, so you can come up and do all that. <laughs> I have to take don't, the whole roll, rear end apart. Fix, don't try and fix it yourself. You're just gonna break shit. Don't. <laughs> we don't. Yeah. Appreciate you coming on and, and uh, joining us and tell a little bit about your background. I'm sure a lot of the people that are going to be listening are going to get some good insight into what it's like to be an Apache pilot for sure. And of course, being a mechanic uh, fixing garbage trucks as well. No, it's it's been a great experience. I, I, I really appreciate you inviting me to come do this. So it's been awesome. It's been great talking to you too, Kat. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and at Facebook by searching at Mentors, the number four M-I-L, and please subscribe to our podcast. It's free, and it ensures you're the first to hear our latest podcast show. We have several options depending upon your device, and we're at iTunes, SoundCloud, at Stitcher, and at TuneIn Radio. It doesn't matter whether you are searching for your passion or purpose, finding your way through a military or civilian career, working on your fitness, or just about to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Get after it.